Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And we're still in our series in Abraham, and I'll explain in a moment why we find ourselves in Hebrews 11. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews 11. I'll read from verses 1 to 16, and we'll focus our time together primarily on verses 8 through 16. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was, pardon me, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of, pardon me, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Pray with me. Lord, your promises are great, and promises you make, you fulfill. And so, Lord, as we consider further what you are accomplishing and what you've done through the life of Abraham and the faith of these men and women, Lord, help us to see your greatness and your faithfulness towards your people. We ask this in your name, Lord. What we're going to do this morning is take a... A bit of a zoom out from where we are. We're in the series of of Abraham looking at the book of Genesis, and we're going to go up to the 35,000-foot view so we can see not only Abraham as a historical narrative, which it is that, but we're going to look at the scope of this promise, of this covenant, which which becomes, as we'll see, is a, a theological thread that's woven through the entirety of Scripture. And so Abraham isn't an isolated story. It's not just a good story of God building himself a family who he's proud of, who has faith in him. But we're going to see that this carries on much farther. And ultimately, this is 
the foundation upon which God builds his redemptive purposes and his plans, which, of course, is in the person of Jesus. So we're going to take a look at that this morning, not only the present physical realities which Abraham and his family faced, but the eternal and, and spiritual realities, implications that are much larger than the story that we find in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. We find two things in this passage that I'd like to spend our time on this morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see through this lens, looking back on the, the, uh, the accounts given to us in the book of Genesis, we're going to see a little bit about faith and a little bit about the covenant. Two things on each of those. We'll see something about faith and something about the covenant. So let's begin. If you've been in the Christian faith or you've been in Christian circles for any amount of time, you've probably seen a lot of things that make you, make you uh, cringe a little bit or make you question, make you doubt if people really understand what it is that the Bible teaches. And one example of this is, is people's understanding of faith. And I've talked with people and I've, I've had conversations with people who, who uh, believe that you know, the more faith you have in something, you can pray and ask God and he'll do it. And if he doesn't do it, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And so they, it's almost like faith is a, a spiritual sort of gunpowder, which they, they load more faith into their spiritual prayer cannon, and they send it up to God, and if God doesn't answer, well, they need to try harder next time. They need to have more faith. And based on Hebrews 11, I don't know if that's how faith is portrayed. If God doesn't answer your prayer, is it because he's not able to? I don't think so. If he didn't answer your prayer, is it because you didn't try hard enough, or that God's might is somehow limited proportionately to the amount of faith you have, as if it's a quantifiable commodity. I don't think that that's how Hebrews 11 describes faith, and so we'll look at that this morning. What we see is that faith does not depend on us. God's covenant, in other words, does not depend on us. It's quite the opposite. Faith begins when we realize that it has nothing to do with us, but it depends entirely on the one who's able to fulfill the promise. Faith isn't about us it's about God. And what we see here in this, in this retelling of some of the Old Testament narratives is we see that faith is presented kind of as a matter of fact. So when we look in the early parts of Hebrews 11, we see that by faith, Noah, well, going back, we see that by faith, um, Abel offered a more pleasing sacrifice than his brother. He did that by faith. We see that Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. We see that Abraham simply obeyed by faith. And Sarah, who by faith she received power to conceive, even though she was unable to otherwise. And the reason is because she considered him faithful who had promised. And the list goes on beyond where we read to, goes on, gives a more, more descriptions. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, we, we can't miss, there's lots of others, but we can't get into it. And so he names uh, Barak and Samson and all these kinds of heroes of faith that we, we know today as, as this passage being the hall of faith. But this isn't just merely a, a highlight reel or, you know, the hall of fame that God's, God's greatest, most proudest people who have ever followed him are put together in one chapter, and that's who we need to be like. I don't think that's what, what we see here. So on the topic of faith, we see two things. The first is that faith is always found in something greater. And the second, as we'll see, is that faith flourishes in the deep end. I have kids, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is to go to the playground with my kids and my little daughter, she's a little bit apprehensive about trying new things. And so she's at the top of the slide, and she doesn't want to go down because she's afraid of the slide, and she's afraid of what might happen at the bottom. And if you have kids or you've had kids, you've probably found yourself here too. And you tell your, your son or your daughter, come on down, it's okay, I will catch you. And you might have to tell them three, four hundred times before they'll listen to you that you will catch them. 
But if you're a good parent, you will catch your son or daughter at the bottom of the slide. And they can, they can trust you. And usually after they do that one time, they realize that, yes, you are faithful. You will catch me when I fall. Of course they can trust you. But you catching them doesn't depend on their faith in you, does it? Like they don't have to have a whole lot of faith to trust that you'll catch them because you'll catch them, even if they have just a little bit of faith, enough faith to get them down the slide. I think it's the same with Abraham. So where did his faith begin? Let's go back to Genesis 12. And if you've been tracking with us for any number of weeks, we're going through this, the, the, uh, the series of, of Abraham, beginning in Genesis 15, uh, 12, pardon me, and we'll continue through well into the book of Genesis. And we're about halfway through, so we're jumping in midway. I realize that. But his faith begins in Genesis 12 when God reaches out of, out of almost nowhere, it seems like. There's a guy named Abraham who's, who shows up on the scene, and God simply calls him. He singles him out, and he makes him a promise. He, he says some things to him that are, uh, that, that are remarkable. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a blessing. I'll give you kids. I'll make you a nation. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. And it says in verse 4 of Genesis 12 that Abraham went as the Lord had told him. God told him to pack up your stuff, to grab your family, pack up, and move far away to a land that you don't know. And that's the land I'm going to give you. And it simply says that Abraham went as the Lord told him. Genesis 12. And in the following chapters, we see that there was a famine, and so Abraham and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt. They come back, and him and his nephew have amassed a lot of cattle and things like that, and so it's, there's not enough room. They're not getting along. They're, they're shepherds and they're, they're they're herdsmen. So they decide to split. And then we see in Genesis 15, God has, God has this, this episode with Abraham. And Abraham comes to God and he says, God, how can this be? How can it be that I will have a descendant? I will have heirs? I don't even have any kids. He, he tells God that uh, a hired servant, someone in his household, is his, only, is his only heir. He doesn't have any kids. Him and his wife are well beyond the age of childbearing, even if they were younger, his wife Sarah was barren. So we're told that there's really no way for them to, humanly speaking, conceive, much less raise kids because time is ticking. And God does something amazing, which we looked at a few weeks ago. God takes Abraham outside and he tells him to look up at the stars. And so Abraham does that and God says, look at the stars as innumerable as they are. In other words, if you can count the stars in the sky, you can count your offspring. There'll be that many of your descendants as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the seashore. And in that moment, it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, a passage that's become well-known to us, that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So faith, in other words, isn't just a kind of acceptance. It is that. You must accept but it goes one step farther. If, if Abraham only believed and sat back and said, okay, God, do your thing, I think the story would have gone a lot differently. But it says, again, in Genesis 12, verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord told him. All the way through, Abraham's acceptance and belief was followed by obedience. He took steps. So obedience is based on trust, and the trust in the one who made the promise is the one in whom our hope is found. Romans chapter 4 also speaks back, looking back at, uh, at the narrative here in Genesis. And in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul asks the question, there's some dispute going on in the New Testament about, well, wasn't Abraham righteous because of his circumcision? Wasn't that the sign which made him righteous? And, and the Apostle Paul breaks that down. And he says, no, it wasn't after he was circumcised. It was before he was circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. In other words, 
He was the father of those who are set apart, who have the physical sign of circumcision, but so that he could also be the father of faith for those who believe before having been circumcised. Abraham's belief led to obedience. He simply took God at his word. Sarah did the same. She received power to conceive since she considered him faithful who had promised. It's pretty plain. It's pretty matter of fact that these great acts of faith, these great men and women of faith, took God at his word. And if you and I have certainty in something to be true, for example, the chair you're sitting on or the couch you're sitting on, you probably didn't give it a whole lot of thought as to whether or not that piece of furniture would hold you up. But sure enough, it did. And because you believe that that's true, you act upon it. You step out in hope and in trust that what is promised, what you believe, will happen. And it's that acceptance and that belief that leads to a life of obedience. And so what made Abraham faithful was his obedience. And what made him obey, what made him obedient, was the fact that his faith was in something much greater. It wasn't as though he could, he could generate more faith within himself, you know, like this spiritual gunpowder where you can somehow generate more of this faith and then, you know, load it up and, 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 and be on your way, light the fuse and be on your way, and you've used enough. No, it tells us in Hebrews, this passage, Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of what we hope for. It's the certainty of what is neither materially nor presently evident. There's no evidence that Abraham and his wife Sarah could possibly be parents, much less grandparents or great-grandparents or, or have any heirs. There's no material, physical evidence present, but it's the assurance of what is hoped for, the certainty of what's not seen. And so it's this confident assurance that Abraham has, not in the promise necessarily, though I do believe he was confident in the promise, but his confidence and his faith came in the promiser, the one who made the promise, something, someone much greater than himself. And it's because of this that faith can become the backbone or the reason that we obey. Because the one we're obeying is worth obeying. He's trustworthy. Another way to understand it is that, that uh, uh, faith is, is where the rubber of your belief meets the road of Christian living. It's where the rubber meets the road. For your little daughter to come down the slide, she has to act. She has to trust you and take that step. It's where the rubber meets the road of the Christian faith. And let me tell you this. Our faith, I think, is most realized, is most completed when we accept the fact that God's plans are better than our own. We accept the fact that God's plans are good and we act accordingly. So the first thing is that our faith is found in something greater. The second is that faith flourishes in the deep end. When I was a kid, uh, I could swim. I took swimming lessons, but I always had a fear of deep water. And I'm not totally sure why, but I think it had something to do with the fact that deep water usually is dark. Uh, there's things under the water that you don't know. You don't feel as, as in control when you're in deep water as when you're in shallow water. And I fear would set in anytime I was swimming in a place where I couldn't see the bottom. And I can remember one day my parents had decided they had had enough of me being scared of deep water, so we went boating. And uh, we went to do some water sports, and we were on a lake, a deep, dark, scary lake, and my mom decided that it was time. And so she, without me expecting it, pushed me in the lake. And uh, I've forgiven her, but, but uh, parents, that's one way to help over, get your kids to overcome fear. But it, and it worked. In that moment, I, I was able to overcome my fear of deep water. I realized that the fish will not bite my toes. <laughs> 
But here's what I think is true of God and us, is that God often calls his people to the deep end. God calls his followers, his children, into uncomfortable circumstances where we can't see the bottom. Think for a moment about the, God's people in the Passover. There's a plague coming, death to the firstborn, and God calls his, his people through Moses. He delivers the message that if you sacrifice the lamb and paint it on the doorposts, this spirit will pass over you. You can imagine what great faith it would have, would have taken. I mean, did I kill the right lamb? Did I put enough blood on the doorpost? Do we, do we have to huddle? Do we have to hang out by a fire? What, what do we do? You can imagine the fear that would set in in that sort of circumstance. Or when Jesus sends out 20, uh, pardon me, 72 uh, disciples, missionaries rather, into the world, he tells them, don't bring, don't bring a change of clothes. Don't bring a wallet. Leave all that stuff behind and go. And trust in me. God calls people to the deep end. And that's hard for you and I because we're self-sufficient people. We like to depend on ourselves, don't we? We like to swim. I do anyway. I like to swim out of the deep water back to the shallow water where I can touch the bottom and I can see the bottom. We're prone to swim back to the shallow end where we feel more safe. But God gives Abraham a guarantee, a guarantee of the promise of descendants, land, and a blessing. And as we've seen, it's just not possible. It just, it just can't happen. His faith had to be in something greater, and God had to take him to the deep end in order to be able to trust in him. So while they're childless, they're barren, they're, they're old, frankly, they're sojourners. In other words, they're living in tents in a place that's not theirs. It'd be like you moving, moving to a hotel room in Arizona for a while. It's not your home. You're living there temporarily, waiting on God to fulfill his promise. They're sojourners. And later, as we'll see in, in, the, in the narrative of what happened with Abraham, is God grants them a son, his very own son, and they call him Isaac. And when Isaac is a boy in Genesis chapter 22, God does something unexpected, and he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. You have to remember, this Hebrews passage comes after Genesis, so we can look back at the whole narrative of Abraham. It is not simply possible, but here's what the Apostle Paul, again, back to Romans 4, says about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, you might say, well, are they really good examples of faith? I mean, Abraham seemed to waver a fair bit. He seemed like a bit of a coward. He lied about Sarah being his sister. He tried to help God out, get the ball rolling with some offspring by impregnating Hagar, his wife's, uh, mis- his wife's maidservant. Weren't they faithless? Well, not according to Romans and not according to Hebrews. It says that no unbelief made them waver in the promises of God, but he grew strong in faith. In doing so, giving glory to God. You see, it's a process. doesn't mean they were perfect. It doesn't mean they didn't mess up. It doesn't mean that if Abraham had the chance to go back, that he wouldn't maybe perhaps do things differently. But here's, here's how that ended. Verse 13 of our text today. These all died. In other words, not just Abraham, but this list that we've looked at. Noah, Enoch, Abel. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It didn't matter. It didn't matter to them because they realized that the covenant, the promise of God, is larger than life, literally larger than life. So why can we have faith? How, can, how is it that you and I can have faith? 
I think the answer comes to us in a few verses following when we, looked at, when we look at Hebrews chapter 12, the very next chapter. It says, therefore, since, by the way, when you see the word therefore, you've got to see what the therefore is. Therefore. So the therefore is there because in the whole passage preceding Hebrews chapter 12, we've just looked at a long list of people who had faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I don't think this means that all these people are in heaven cheering us on on the bleachers, watching us run the race. I think the, the cloud of witnesses is these men and women who have gone before us, they're witnesses to God's faithfulness. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Because God has proven himself to be faithful. Read Hebrews 11. Read Romans 4. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read your Bible. You'll see that God is a faithful God, and you need to remember that. I don't know where you woke up this morning or where you came from, but perhaps you're in the deep end right now in life. The deep end is a good place to be because it's where our faith flourishes. It's where we learn to trust in God and our faith grows. I tell you this, you're in a good place. God doesn't promise to give us all the answers. He doesn't promise to remove the obstacles. He doesn't promise to remove the pain in life. He doesn't promise to let us see more than what sometimes feels like a few short inches in front of us. God never promises that. But he promises to be faithful and he promises to fulfill what he says. His plans are good. And he asks us to walk in obedience. So what is it that God's called you to do? Read your Bible. He calls you to give. He calls you to be generous. He calls you to love. Without expecting anything in return, he calls you to submit. He calls you to be faithful, to honor one another, to outdo one another in kindness. And so when life seems uncertain, will you trust God? Will you trust in his faithfulness, even though you find yourself in the deep end? So we learn about faith, that it's found in something greater, that it flourishes in the deep end. And I said we learned something about the covenant, and so let's look at the covenant. Going back to Genesis 15, where we looked at a few weeks ago, Pastor Barry walked us through this, this scene where, where God makes this covenant with Abraham, and there's dead animals, and and uh, flaming fire pots walking through, and Abraham's asleep. You remember that? that I'll recap it for you, but, but uh, God, uh, is with, God shows up to Abraham. Abraham is, is there, and it says that a deep sleep fell upon him, okay? You ever felt really sleepy, maybe like you do right now? Deep sleep, okay? It says that, that it got dark, physically dark. The sun went down. It was, a dark, it was a dark scene. And Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and, and he's just at this point prepared all these sacrifices. So he's cut animals in half, laid them out, he's all ready to go. And here's what happens. He falls into a deep sleep, and God appears to Abraham, and he says this, Know for certain, for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. He repeats the promise, but keep in mind, Abraham's asleep. <laughs> you can imagine a husband and wife, or a bride and a groom, anyway, on their wedding day, and the, the groom's just, you know, overcoming his nervousness, and he's about to recite his vows, and imagine his bride just lays down on the platform and has a nap. Come on, wake up! <laughs> Here's why I think 
part of why, anyway, Abraham was put into a deep sleep. Because when are you more vulnerable? When are you less conscious than when you're asleep? Sleep is a great thing. It's necessary. But you're totally vulnerable. You're completely dependent on God. And what Abraham saw, what the purpose of that was God showing Abraham that he is not a contributor to the fulfillment of this covenant. His role is passive. In other words, if I, if I make a promise to you that I'll uh, pay, pay off your car, I'll, I'll make all the rest of your car payments, it has nothing to do with you. I've promised that. I'll do it. Abraham's role is a passive participant. You ever had a kid come up to you and say, what are you doing? Can I help? And you're like, okay, this is going to end up being more work for me. And so you're doing the work. You're, you're the muscle and you're the coordinator of everything. But your kids at the end say, yay, we did it. And you're thinking, yeah, we did it. Good job. This is the kind of role Abraham plays with God. He doesn't do anything in and of himself to help this covenant be fulfilled. And we see this by God, when God tells Abraham, by the way, you're going to die. You're going to live a good long life. You're going to be laid to rest. And my covenant will continue to be fulfilled. My covenant is larger than you. It depends on my grace. And we see that God has no greater name to swear by When you make a promise, you'll say, oh, I swear on whatever. I swear on a cheeseburger that I'll do this. God has nothing greater to swear by. So it tells us in Hebrews 6 that he swears by his own name. This is an unconditional covenant where God tells Abraham, I got this. I got you. Abraham simply has to trust in faith that God will do what he says he'll do. And the reason why it depends on faith is so that according to the Apostle Paul, is that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. It's necessary that Abraham didn't accomplish this in his own ability. It's necessary that it came on faith so that the promise could rest on grace. Did you know that faith in and of itself is a grace of God? You and I can't make ourselves have faith. It tells us That faith is a spiritual gift. We all have some measure of faith because we're saved by it. And if you know Jesus, you have some measure of faith. But it's God who's granted you that faith, that ability to see. Your faith is a grace of God. And the words, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The covenant did not end with Abraham. It did not end with Isaac. It did not end with Jacob. It did not end with Joseph and the 12. It did not end there. It kept going. And it says that this promise was was for us also so that when we have faith in the fulfillment of the covenant, Jesus himself, we too might be forgiven. Jesus fulfilled the covenant. In the New Testament, you see, especially in, this, in the book of Hebrews, the audience are, keep in mind, first, first century Jewish readers. And there's a lot of piety in being, being a Jew, being a, a law keeper. There's a lot of piety. There's a lot of good, good, uh, good uh, respect. And there's a lot of pompous that comes from being a keeper of the law. And Hebrews 11 confronts this by telling us that, that the promise isn't only for them, <laughs> Romans 4 tells us that there's no distinction. There's no benefit to being circumcised. There's no benefit to being a biological descendant of Abraham because that wasn't the point. 
The point wasn't about becoming a blood relative of Abraham. The point was becoming a son of his through faith, to become a descendant. And so circumcision and your, your pedigree, your, your family tree, are of no distinction, of no benefit to you. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. You and I are the blessing to the whole world. Salvation is a grace of God given by faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. But God's grace is somewhat of a mystery, isn't it? And I don't mean mystery that it's, it's, it's mysterious and scary and we can't, we can't understand it, but it's a mystery in that we can't understand all of it. How is it that if God's gracious that we're in the midst of a pandemic? If God's gracious and God's good, why, why are people dying? Why are there wars? If God is truly gracious, God's grace is somewhat of a mystery. Have you ever pleaded with God in prayer for maybe a good thing? Maybe to be healed? Or maybe for, for wisdom, for guidance, for instruction? And you feel like God has, has turned you off or he's turned a deaf ear? Have you ever felt like God has not heard your prayers? Even though what you're asking for is a good thing. The Apostle Paul experienced this. And in 2 Corinthians 12, we, we understand that he, we don't know what it was, but it tells us that uh, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Probably not a physical thorn in his flesh, but a metaphorical thorn. Something that was aggravating him. And it tells us that it was a messenger of Satan. So this, this was some kind of pain, some kind of sorrow, some kind of struggle, some kind of perhaps a physical ailment. We don't know a lot about it. But it tells us that it was given to him by God to torment him. And he tells us that he pleaded with the Lord three times, take this away, take this away, take this away. Free me from this thorn in my flesh. And Jesus, in a vision, shows up to Paul and in verse nine of 2 Corinthians 12, you know what he says? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The sufficiency of God's grace means that his power is still at work even though you feel weak. Even though you're in the deep end, even though you're tired, even though you're broken, even though you've lost a spouse, even though you're grieving, even though you can't see the bottom, God's grace is sufficient. Abraham caught only a glimpse of the fulfillment of that promise because remember, he died. Abraham's not still living. He died, he was laid to rest, and it was 400 years, way more than 400 years before they even inherited a land, much less became, became a nation and, and blessed the whole world. Abraham caught only a glimpse, and it tells us in our passage that they greeted them from afar. There's a great image of, of Moses on the top of the mountain looking over at the promised land, and God says, ah, you're not going to get to go in. You've made it this far. I, I'll take it from here. They greeted the promise from afar. The second thing about God's grace, pardon me about the covenant, is that it's always fulfilled in God's timing. You and I live in a comfort culture Immediacy and accessibility are, are two defining words of our culture, isn't it? I mean, as if fast food wasn't easy enough to go get just through the drive-thru, did you know that you could pick up your phone and have someone bring you fast food to your house? It's immediate and it's accessible. And these aren't bad things, by the way, but our culture is an immediate culture. If you message with someone on your phone through Facebook or whatever, you can see if they've read your message and if they've taken more than four seconds to get back to you, something's wrong. We live in an immediate culture where we expect immediate results, and I think we do the same with God. We pray and we say, God, hello, 
I see you've read my message. I'm waiting for those speech bubbles to come back. What do you got? Tim Keller this week, and in and, and God's providence, the timing is, of course, in his hands. But Tim Keller this past week, uh, he's a hero of mine. He tweeted, God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. So that's not scripture. That's Tim Keller, but man, it's good stuff. God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. Why? Because he's God. <laughs> and you're not. His grace will rarely operate according to your schedule. And that's why living as a foreigner, by faith, intense with his sons, Abraham patiently waited for the promise because he was looking forward, as we see, to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. God's doing great things, but he's doing it on his time. And it doesn't depend on us. So do you trust, let me ask you this, do you trust in the sufficiency of God's grace and in his timing for the things he's laid in front of you? You might be in the deep end, but are you going to trust in his timing? In closing, I want to consider a, 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 a scene where Jesus is traveling and there's crowds all around him. And he's actually on his way, in Luke chapter 8, he's actually on his way to, to heal someone's young daughter, a guy named Jairus. He comes to Jesus and he's on his way to go heal this daughter who's, who's uh, not well. And on his way, there's crowds of people surrounding Jesus. We get, we get a small picture of this woman. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that for 12 years, as old as this little girl's been alive, for 12 years, this woman has had a hemorrhage. She's been bleeding, a menstrual kind of bleeding. And it tells us that she uh, has spent her whole living, her whole life savings on physicians, and there's no hope. Nobody has been able to heal her. And of course, if, if this were you, if you were the woman, you would have been socially uh, unclean. You would have been ceremonially unclean, and so you can imagine this poor outcast woman, completely hopeless. And in a moment of desperation, in, amongst the crowd, she reaches out and touches the fringe of Christ's garment. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And people are like, Jesus, chill out. Like, it's a crowd of people. Surely someone touched you. He says, no. Somebody was healed. Who was it? And this woman is probably a little bit shocked. But she approaches Jesus and she tells him exactly why she reached out to touch his garment. And in gentle, reassuring love, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, her faith was in something greater. There was no hope. She could not see the bottom to her condition. She waited 12 years. If it were up to her, I don't think she would have waited 12 years for herself to be clean, to be healed. She was wholly dependent on God's grace and in his timing. And Jesus gently tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, God plays the long game. He's good at it. His plans are good. He's faithful to his promises and he can be trusted. And my prayer for us is that despite our fickle hearts that are weak and wander, that it may be said of us as it was of Sarah, that we would believe that the one who has promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful. Your ways are not our ways. You're high above. Help us, Lord, not to fix our eyes on our temporal circumstances or the odds that seem ever stacked against us and the impossibility of life and to thrive 
and to succeed in the eyes of the world. But Lord, help us to trust that your work is good, that your promises are good, that you're not asleep at the wheel. But Father, you're a gracious God. You fulfill things in your timing. I pray that our faith would flourish in the deep end.